Welcome uh, to uh, another interview of uh, EFSAS. This time we're interviewing Professor Mick Moore. Uh, Professor Mick Moore is a political economist. He has done extensive field work and research in Asia and Africa, especially in Sri Lanka, Taiwan, and India. He has taught at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, your broad interests are in the domestic and international dimensions of good and bad governance in poor countries. And uh, you, fo you focus specifically on taxation and governance and between 2010 and 20, you um, were the founding chief executive officer of the International Center for Tax and Development, uh, a global network improving the quality of tax policy and administration in lower income countries through collaborative policy oriented research. Um, this institute is based at the Institute of Development Studies, founded in 2010, funded by the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the Norwegian Agency for Development Cooperation. You are currently um, a senior fellow at, the, at this uh, International Center for Tax and Development, and also a professorial fellow at the Institute of Development Studies. Uh, a think tank affiliated with the University of Sussex in the UK. Um, you've been engaged with and researching on politics and economics in Sri Lanka for the last 50 years almost, uh, and published an enormous amount of uh, papers uh, and briefs on the said subject. You were recently in Colombo and have just returned to the UK 10 days ago. Uh, so welcome, uh, sir. Um, as you must have guessed, or the audience must have guessed, this is about the situation in Sri Lanka, which is confronting its worst economic crisis in decades, with economists saying that its public debt has reached unsustainable levels. Uh, in early March, the IMF called for urgent reforms uh, in the island's uh, nation's uh, economy. Um, they have a huge foreign exchange crisis, falling reserves, government unable to foot the bill for essential imports, severe shortages of essentials like food, medicine, milk, milk powder, cooking gas, fuel, uh, and people are forced to wait in long queues to get petrol and diesel. The country's central bank has allowed the local currency to free float, uh, causing a sharp increase in prices. Uh, and according to the World Bank estimates, over half a million Sri Lankans have already fallen below the poverty line since the pandemic struck. Um, and therefore we have uh, today invited you to uh, tell us um, and enlighten us, educate us a bit more on the issue in Sri Lanka. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, well, let me, thank you for that introduction, Junaid, and you're right uh, about the current economic crisis. It's probably true that this is the worst economic crisis that's ever hit Sri Lanka in recorded history. It is extremely serious. And it's worth saying at the beginning that this economic crisis is almost entirely caused by government decisions um, that were extremely unwise and known by any independent economist to be unwise at the time. It's true that uh, certain other issues, including COVID and now the effects of uh, high international food, food and fuel prices exacerbated this, but they are actually quite small in the big picture. So we have 
a man-made um, problem. And one reason why uh, people in Sri Lanka are very angry and demonstrating is because they know we have a man-made problem. So let me, I'll go into a little more detail, but let me just first make another contextual point. It is less than two years since the last parliamentary elections. And the people now in power who are being strongly told to go home uh, won two thirds of the seats in those elections. So we're talking of a very quick turnaround between a government that was really quite popular with a majority of the electorate and now is deeply unpopular. So let's, let's look at the levels here. I mean, the immediate manifestations are the, as you said, uh, there's an acute shortage of foreign exchange and major restrictions on imports. Therefore, it is very difficult uh, to get access to fuel and to food and a whole lot of other things. And this means in turn, because Sri Lanka is quite dependent on fossil fuels for generating electricity, that there have been a high level of uh, electricity cuts and still are very high level of electricity cuts. Problems of transport, medicines are beginning to run very, become very scarce in many places. So a very unhappy immediate situation. The reason for that is again, as you suggested, is essentially that in the last few years, government has contracted very big debts in foreign exchange um, that it can't in practice repay, it can't finance. And even worse, it has been evident for a long time, well over a year, that the government could not finance, sensibly finance these debts. It did not have the foreign exchange to pay back. But the government insisted until very recently in complete violation of common sense and <laughs> facts and statistics and everything else that it was going to repay its loans. And um, it should have gone to its international creditors at least a year ago, probably more, and said, look, you know that there's no way we can repay the loans. Um, let's renegotiate, uh, let's restructure. And had it done that, it would be in a much better position than it is today, but it insisted with total, um, you know, not, not allowing any alternative until the very last minute to say that no, it could uh, finance its loans. So we have a critical situation and it's critical particularly because the government has left it so late that the, you know, what would have been a problematic situation is now very, very difficult to deal with. And why did government uh, get so deeply in debt? Well, part of the reason is that it just took very large international loans to fund in particular a lot of infrastructure projects, ports and roads that were politically quite popular because they generated a lot of employment and widely believed to have generated many opportunities um, for uh, what we politely call rent seeking, other people call corruption. So that's one part of the story. Uh, a lot of international borrowing for projects which might or might not pay off in the long run, but in the short run are not paying off at all. 
But the other element of the story and the bigger element of the story is that it's about tax revenue. Now, Sri Lanka used to be quite a, the government of Sri Lanka used to be quite a uh, accomplished uh, collector of taxes. If we go back 30, 40 years ago, it used to collect more taxes than you would expect for a low income country. But uh, for the last 30 years, uh, government just started to give away revenue very, very gently. Um, not, in, not, very, not explicitly and not in terms of policy, but it just did that. Uh, in 2009, it started to give away a lot of revenue, just withdrawing taxes, not bothering to collect them. And then in uh, late 2019, after the current president was elected, in one budget, the government effectively gave away about 30% of potential revenue for the next year, when there was already a serious revenue situation. So you can see that at that point, um, those people who had bought government of Sri Lanka bonds and were expecting to be repaid, looked at this and began to realize that the government of Sri Lanka could not repay because it wasn't raising enough revenue to repay. And then they started uh, being willing to buy bonds only at what was effectively high rates of interest. And the government of Sri Lanka carried on borrowing at these high rates of interest. So it was borrowing at high rates of interest to pay off previous loans and just you know, painted itself, into a, itself and the country into a bigger and bigger corner. Um, so that's the broad economic situation. And I would just add on that, that there are a number of people who've been in very senior economic policy making positions, not people in government, but people occupying positions in the central bank and, and the treasury um, who have exhibited what I can frankly only call gross incompetence. So we have a government here that was it has been run by one family. It has been dominant for quite a long time. It's got a lot of political kudos from having defeated Tamil separatism as long ago as uh, 2009 now, but there's been continuing kudos from that. It was in a very strong position. Um, the family is quite large, but they've typically had at least four members in senior positions. So it wasn't long ago that um, there were four brothers occupying the positions of president, prime minister, finance minister, and speaker of parliament. Even a year ago, people were saying, this family is going to run this country forever. There's no way we're ever gonna get rid of them. And that's actually how it looked. And in a very short period of time, uh, that situation has completely turned around. And there is a sort of general point, I think, to make about this, that we shouldn't always assume that governments are superbly intelligent and knowledgeable and serving their own interests, because uh, sometimes, in this case, they've shot themselves in the foot very seriously by a combination of some kind of hubris, uh, thinking that they could do anything, and incompetence at economic management. So that's the broad background. And you've 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 talked in the beginning. You you said it's almost fully caused by bad government decisions, uh, man-made problem. And then what I want to ask you: to what extent do you think that you talked about the debt uh, the debt structure? 
to what extent do you think this unsustainable debt structure precedes the reign of the Rajapaksas? Um, I mean, government has been spending more than it uh, has been earning for quite a long period of time. But um, they, I mean, of course, economists tell them you shouldn't do that. But in fact, they got away with it for a long time. And they partly got away with it because the economy has been growing quite fast. And a lot of this is not, in fact, to do with government policy. But if you look at a country like Sri Lanka, ideally placed for in terms of international shipping, has a great deal of shipping and transshipment business, um, has economic relations with uh, many countries in Asia. Sri Lanka has been benefiting from Asian economic growth. So that economic growth, which was nothing particularly to do with government policy, has really kept the economy going. So it has allowed government to um, take decisions, uh, economic, pursue economic policies that weren't necessarily wise. But the real big debts, um, uh, when we talk about debts, I'm talking here of international debts in foreign currency. The government's been borrowing domestically for a long time. Um, but the big international debts in foreign currency come after the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So we're talking about the last 10 years or so. And that is, in fact, entirely under the Rajapaksa governments. So that there's no serious way in which they can say this is an inheritance from some previous government. And uh, when you also talked about, you talked about a little bit about the civil war, which has been uh, until 2009. Or, um, so how do you think this current economic crisis relates to the history of the civil war? Do, do you think that, um, you know, taking out loans increased significantly over the course of the war to fund a government offensive during the war? Is it then, you know, does it have its foundations in the civil war? Um, virtually not at all, strangely enough, because you would expect that it would have. But in fact, uh, the war, while it was long, um, was not particularly expensive, and on the whole, the government covered the cost of the war by reducing other kinds of public expenditure, especially on uh, education um, and a range of other public services. So really, you know, the population of Sri Lanka, in effect, funded the war. Um, and even during the war, the government never made an effort to try and raise more tax revenue on the grounds that we need it to pay for the war. So, yes. Somewhat surprisingly, the war really uh, was not that expensive, did not in a significant way derail the economy, partly because the war was really fought in a relatively peripheral part of the country where there's very little economic activity anyway. Um, so from the point of view of many macroeconomic aggregates, if you look at history, the war doesn't actually feature very prominently in the macroeconomy. Okay. You also talked about infrastructure. Um, I have here, this is a, an article published in uh, the South China Morning Post uh, two weeks ago. And the byline, I think, is almost, um, it's, it's, it sums up of what you said in your introduction. Uh, it, 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 and I quote, it says, years of debt accumulation, policy missteps, including a failed experiment in organic farming, 
and ill-conceived infrastructure projects built with Chinese funds have led the nation to the edge of catastrophe. I think that 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 sums up of, of what you were saying in the beginning. And let, let's come to these. You were talking about these infrastructure projects, which are political, uh, politically very popular, but might not be economically very, you know, sustainable. Um, then you come back about if you talk about the Rajapaksas, you come of course to the Hambantota port, which was done in his backyard. Um, a U.S. former uh, ambassador, Alice Wells described Sri Lanka after what happened with the Hamantota port as effectively ceding sovereignty. Um, so how do you see these projects as the South China Morning Post says the Chinese funded projects, how do you see these contributing to uh, not only the economic crisis, but also the political crisis in the country? Yes, I think, um... It's important to say in the first instance, China is not the only funder of these big infrastructure projects. The government itself has funded a lot with lending and India has funded a certain amount also, though much smaller scale. Um, I would separate two issues. One is the bad decisions to spend so much on infrastructure. Um, the Hambantota port you mentioned is a classic case. I mean, it is vastly too big. For Sri Lanka. Right next to it is a new international airport. Both of these are built in very rural areas with very little economic activity. That international airport, Matala, is, has the record of being the least used international airport in the world. Um, it, it shouldn't be there. Nobody wants it. So there's been a lot of overexpenditure on infrastructure projects. But I think we need to separate that out from the issue of is there any significant Chinese responsibility? Um, and I think it's clear that we cannot blame the government of China in particular for this. I mean, it's certainly true that uh, Asian governments and especially the Indian and Chinese governments are in some competition for influence in Sri Lanka and therefore willing to fund projects. But the funding of the Hambantota port in particular was very big, was by China, and it was on commercial terms. And the reason the Chinese finally got control of Hambantota port was that the government of Sri Lanka realized that, uh, you know, it could not repay the loans in any other way. So it handed it over to China. But I don't think there's any evidence. I mean, it may be that People in China had a kind of hope this would happen, but there is no evidence that I can see that China, the government of China in any way did any significant arm twisting here to force the government of Sri Lanka to do things that it didn't want. I mean, these are, these are government of Sri Lanka decisions and very clearly so. Why were they made then? If, if, if what, what was the main reason of the Sri Lankan government to do? Well, that is, I mean, one can give partial explanations, but um, it still leaves a mystery. I mean, the explanations we have are these decisions generated a lot of jobs for people. And then that sense, they're electorally popular, um, especially in rural areas. Um, they generated many opportunities for, let's say, intermediaries to make a lot of money out of this. And there's no doubt that uh, people close to power have made an awful lot of money out of these projects. 
there is a kind of prestige element to this. But I think it's really hard to explain what's gone on without reverting to a term like hubris. And the government, um, especially the Rajapaksa brothers, got in a position where everything seemed to be working for them. And they seemed to have believed they were invincible, that whatever they would do, it would work out fine. And, um, you know, for some years that was true. But uh, it is absolutely fair to say that none of them have any significant understanding of economics or macroeconomics. And the people they appointed um, to run the macro economy were in varying degrees incompetent or um, had very strange beliefs about the wisdom of government spending money endlessly, um, thinking that that would be a good thing. So, you know, ultimately, we, I think it, we can't understand this without saying that it's hubris, because they say the government has actually seriously shot itself in the foot. I mean, a year ago, it was dominating the country, electorally quite popular. And, you know, people said, we're never going to get rid of this family. They're going to rule the country forever. And it looked like that. So uh, it is, it's a little hard, I appreciate, to understand from outside. If maybe there's some other secret factor there, but I don't know what the secret factor is. And I certainly don't think we should um, you know, put significant blame on other governments, whether China or India or anyone else in this case. There is, there is a piece in the Foreign Policy magazine, which actually also describes what you just said. It says, in Sri Lanka, China isn't solely to blame, but it's also not blameless. Uh, and that is rightly concerning for Sri Lanka as well as other countries around the world. I think what they mean by this is they are uh, trying to examine maybe moral responsibilities of other bigger governments in the neighborhood who like to play out their regional wars in vulnerable countries, uh, economically vulnerable countries, which then effectively in some way have to cede sovereignty or power or whatever. How, how do you take, do you agree with that? I agree with that. I mean, China is not blameless. India is not blameless. I mean, what we have to simplify it is we have a government um, that clearly did not understand macroeconomic policy and understand its own interests. And China in particular, but also India, I mean, if it had been, um, you know, a superb national citizen of the world would have said to the government of Sri Lanka, look, you really shouldn't be borrowing this vast amount of money for projects that uh, don't make any economic sense. You know, we just, we're not going to lend, we're not going to lend you and you shouldn't borrow from anyone else, you shouldn't do it. Um, but of course, in the context of geostrategic competition and I don't know, Sri Lanka is a very important point on world shipping lanes. Uh, governments don't take that position. So, yes. How do you, how do you get this economic crisis further in the coming days and years will affect those power dynamics between China and India further? Also, of course, keeping in view that Delhi recently has pledged a two billion economic aid package to Sri Lanka. Yes. So how do you see this turning out? Well, again, it's hard to predict, but it's certainly true that in recent months, uh, India has uh, got a bigger voice, you might say, in Colombo, in policymaking. 
And in fact, the government of China has been remarkably quiet for some period of time. They have not responded to a request for emergency loans. Um, and we don't know how they're going to respond. It's, it's rather difficult to say. It's quite possible that uh, the Chinese are taking the view that the political situation in Sri Lanka has now got so fragile and they have been historically so associated with the Rajapaksa family that it's wise of them to step back and try and reduce that association so that if there is a change of government, then the new government is not, sorry, the new government is not gonna completely reject China on the grounds that China was a key ally of the Rajapaksas. But I'm only speculating, it's really not at all clear what, um, what China is doing. And I think the government of India is doing what one would expect of it given its geostrategic interests. I mean, it has given significant loans to uh, the government of Sri Lanka in return for certain Chinese projects that were far too close to India being canceled. So, you know, Delhi is doing what you would expect Delhi to do and probably playing a fairly sensible hand at this moment. Do you, do you think the Rajapaksa's brothers uh, would have, would feel to be as if they have been let down by Beijing? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is a very hard one to judge. I mean, there was a point less than a year ago where um, there was a sort of meeting of uh, the Communist Party in China with the ruling party in Sri Lanka, and it was a party-to-party -party event, mm. you know, which is really quite strange because the ruling party in Sri Lanka is in no sense a communist party. So at that point, um, this seemed a little strange, but it did look as if this is a part of a build-up of longer-term political relations between the Rajapaksas and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but that looks as if it was probably a once-off. I don't think the Rajapaksas are, um, I mean, I think they use China when they could, they'll use India to the extent they can and anyone else they can, but I don't think um, they have been excessively influenced by any one foreign power. I think they've been making their own strategic decisions, some of them sensible and some of them not so sensible. And one more question on on this on this on this geopolitical game which is being played there. You just said about China that they have not replied yet to a request of the Sri Lankan government. It's also true that China has been busy in structuring or restructuring Sri Lankan foreign debt towards Beijing. Um, has 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 their behavior diverged from other? international creditors how they how do you think they are doing that are they doing that as a as a responsible uh, moral superpower or are they looking for their are they looking after their own interests at this moment we don't know i mean the the foreign debts are to a mixture some of them are private to private bondholders some of them are to governments like india and china and some are to international organizations asian development bank probably World Bank, etc. So far, I've not seen any clear, you know, position from any of those um, creditors. But that, in a sense, that is not surprising because the business of renegotiating debts, especially when you have such a wide 
portfolio of, of uh, different lenders is really quite difficult. Um, and it takes quite a lot of diplomacy and it's a major legal issue as well. So I wouldn't expect a lot of people to be going public at this moment. I would expect people to be keeping quiet and um, you know, seeing what emerges from this. But it, it is worth just pointing out here, Junaid, that um, the government of Sri Lanka finally said it, was, it is now in conversations with the IMF uh, about these debts. I mean, that, is, that wasn't strictly necessary. In principle, a year ago, they could possibly have renegotiated their debts without the IMF, um, but it's too late to do that now. They need the IMF. But it's going to be quite some time before there's any agreement, because even to get the IMF on side, they need to do two things. First, they need to appoint a legal advisor and an economic advisor for the debt re uh, renegotiations, which they haven't yet done and could have done months ago. So again, they've lost time. Um, secondly, the IMF has made it clear that they're not going to engage in very substantive negotiations until the government comes up with some kind of reasonable plan to get out of debt in the long term. And there's no sign yet that anyone in government is doing that. And indeed, most of the key economic policymakers now, especially the new governor of the central bank and the new treasury secretary have only been in post for about two weeks. So it's a little early for them to, and the identity to finance minister. So it's a little early for them to do this. So we're talking now of probably an extended period of time where there may be some emergency loans but there is a very significant chance that the economic situation, especially you know, the import constraint, is going to get worse rather than better, I'm sad to say. And if, if, if they do get a bailout from the IMF, and considering IMF's historical focus on macroeconomic control, uh, of course, also in regard to reduction of public spending, uh, how would such a bailout by the IMF, if it comes, impact Sri Lankan consumers or the local population in the short and medium term? Yeah, I mean, I do know from um, a well-placed source that what the IMF, the signals the IMF are giving to Sri Lanka are not quite those that people associate historically with the IMF, because people think about the IMF public spending cuts. I mean, that's uh, our automatic reaction. And unfortunately, quite a lot of people in Sri Lanka, including friends of mine, think the same way, and they're very opposed to the IMF. But the IMF has basically given the signal that the key issue here is public revenue. As I said, the problem is the government's been giving away tax revenue. So the key issue is public revenue, raising more of that on a sustainable basis. And secondly, in, in as far as they're concerned about expenditure, um, they would be concerned not about the level. They think public expenditure in Sri Lanka is not high enough. I mean, education spending in Sri Lanka is one of the lowest in Asia as a percent of GDP. So, you know, the IMF think we need more public spending. Um, they are concerned about the efficiency of expenditure and their right to be because the government of Sri Lanka employs far too many people, both in civil posts and in military posts. And, you know, a great deal of money and indeed labor that could be better used in the economy is, you know, is absorbed with people doing, frankly, very little often in the public sector. 
But the other thing that the IMF is likely to support, although as far as they know, they haven't suggested this, quite a number of the economic actors in Colombo and policymakers say that what we urgently need now is some kind of direct cash transfer grant to the poorest households for some interim period to get them over this crisis. And I think that's absolutely right. I think it might happen. And it's important to point out there's a great need for that because Sri Lanka as a middle income country should years ago have had some kind of direct cash transfer scheme for the poorest part of the population. That's what you expect a middle income country with a fairly thriving economy to do. But yeah, to... In, uh, in India, you have those uh, schemes. And in... yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I would, if I was Sri Lankan, I would say it's an embarrassment that we don't have one. So there is a possibility there and that could probably be funded in some way. And if it could be got off the ground quite quickly, that might do something to alleviate, you know, the, both the, the personal pain and indeed some of the political pain of the next year or so. And, you know, you, you have brought very nicely, you've brought uh, home the point uh, how, how, how the current economic crisis plays out economically, but also internationally in terms of the IMF, but also India and and and, Sri, and, uh, and China, of course. Coming a little bit to the more of the security situation, because as you know, political crises, economic crisis always have or could have an effect on, on, on security situation. And Sri Lanka is home to a few challenges in security they've had in the recent past, most notably the recent, uh, or three years ago, the Easter bombing claimed by ISIS. Um, do you think, how, how do you see the security situation also in regards to terrorism, but also the role of, as some people would say, the military in protecting the government? Yep. Um... First, I mean, separatism, Tamil separatism is dead as far as you know, and I do not see it reviving in any feasible future unless, you know, if the country began to fall apart politically, that would be different. But currently, there's no sign of a revival. I mean, the ISIS bombing, again, we never know, but that was probably a once off. And that succeeded because of the incompetence of the people uh, running security in Sri Lanka. I mean, the intelligence people knew this was a threat. It's just that people high up, president, prime minister, et cetera, ignored the warnings. So there's, I think, grounds to say that it's unlikely that we're going to get any kind of Islamic terrorism of a major dimension here. So the, the big security issue at the moment is whether and in what circumstances the armed forces might intervene on the side of the government against protesters and demonstrators. And that is really a big question that's on everyone's lips. Now, so far, the situation is less worrying than one might have expected because there is a long history of using force against political opponents in Sri Lanka. Um, the president is an ex-military man. Um, he believes there are simple solutions to problems, uh, including the use of force. So there's every reason historically to think that the military might be used. 
so far, um, that's not the case. Now, there, was, there is one exception here, one particular exception, which is two days ago, there was police firing on demonstrators on the town of Rambukana, um, and one person was killed, at least 12 people injured. So this can always, always happen. But the, leaving that aside, and let's hope that's the odd occasion, the positive signs are that the demonstrators in Colombo, and there are a lot of them, and they have a permanent camp, are very well organized, and um, they are pursuing peaceful methods, quite disciplined, impressively disciplined. And the police have so far been, um, I, I'll say unproblematic. I mean, I wouldn't say 100% unproblematic, but relative to expectations, the police have been rather hands-off. Um, and indeed, there was one small occasion where uh, the police got in conflict with the army because the army was engaging in provocative actions. So the police have been uh, hands off. Both the um, head of the armed forces and the president have declared that the armed forces will not be used against peaceful demonstrators. Again, this is a very positive move. Um, and the fact that it was that declaration was first made by the head of the armed forces and was made to the armed forces is actually quite interesting because I imagine this was a clear response to a lot of people in the armed forces who are also very upset with the government uh, and you know and have uh, friends and family who are demonstrating uh, there's I'm sure we'll request from there please tell us you're not going to use us against our own people so that's been that's quite peaceful so far. Um, so, so you 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 don't think a classic military coup could be possible in Sri Lanka? No, not at the moment. I think we're a long way away from that. I mean, I think that would only happen if there were serious breakdown of law and order to the extent that there didn't seem any alternative. Um, and I say that because um, there is no sign that the army uh, is sort of particularly strongly organized. I mean, it's true, they generally support the Rajapaksas, but I don't think they're that strongly organized. I think there are many different political views. And I think, an, uh, you know, an attempt at an armed coup now could possibly, you know, end up with a failure, conflict within the military, etc. So there's no sign, no indication at this moment that that's going to happen. But, you know, two or three months down the line, if other things go wrong, um, and it looks like that's the only way of restoring law and order, then that could be on the agenda. Um, Professor Moore, we're coming to the close end of this interview uh, because I know you're not a fan of very long interviews um, <laughs> um, uh, but I, I just have two or three more questions and one is of course the the maybe an obvious one but and it's probably very much interrelated but according to you as having studied Sri Lanka for more than 50 years um, what is the bigger crisis is it the political one or is it the economic one, if you can separate both? Okay, and in fact, these are inseparable because this is the first time I've been to, I mean, Sri Lanka is a very political country and very politicized, and as you said, has a long history of conflict and quite serious internal bloodshed. Um, 
Sri Lanka today is transformed from the past because instead of being deeply divided by politics, you have, you know, 90% of the population against the government and actually uh, many of them demonstrating and demonstrating very often in a very organized, disciplined kind of way. Um, so in that, but that wouldn't have happened if there weren't so many power cuts and shortages of fuel that so many people come out on the streets. I mean, those, those dem united demonstrations wouldn't have happened. So the two are absolutely tied together you know, in a very deep way. Um, what quite well, I mean, the situation now is wide open, absolutely wide open. I mean, I, I look at the news closely and it almost changes from day to day. There was a point about two weeks ago when the immediate resignation of the president looked possible. Um, that didn't happen. And then about a week ago, uh, you could see various signs that the, not the president, but his brother, Mahinda Rajapaksa, former president, currently prime minister, who is a politically very smart operator, has really taken control. And he has started to engage in a range of operations which are intended to calm the situation and try and conciliate to some extent the protesters. So in addition to those statements that the military won't be used, we've got talks now of amendments to the constitution to greatly reduce the presidential power, um, offers to talk with uh, demonstrators, etc. So three or four days ago, I thought, oh, well, the pendulum has shifted and now you know, the Rajapaksas have got a political strategy that might work. But then, uh, against that, in the last couple of days, other people and forces who had not spoken out very powerfully against the government have spoken out powerfully. And two of these are very significant as new forces. One is the private sector has become more and more vocal against the government. A private sector, which until a few months ago, did not dare raise a peep of criticism against the government. We've had various statements from all the chambers of commerce, collective statements from all the chambers of commerce, which are quite strongly anti-government. And yesterday, the biggest private, private employer in the country, a very large garment firm, the first single firm came out and said in a very diplomatically worded statement, enough. So we've got the private sector coming out. At the same time, the, the Buddhist orders, um, the, there are collectively the chief priests of the four big Buddhist orders came out with a statement two days ago, which doesn't, in terms of words, call on the government to resign, but is as close as you would expect. And for a country where Buddhism is built into the constitution, to have all the chief priests collectively making a statement about casting doubt on the government is very questionable. And the demonstrations in Goreface Green continue. Uh, there's a camp, um, a lot of people there. I think morale is very high. So, uh, you know, it may be tomorrow that the pendulum might have swung another way. But what I'm saying is at this moment, the, I, I could not predict an outcome of this. It's quite possible the president will resign quite soon and just go away. And we could get a peaceful transfer, although the constitutional issues are quite tricky here. And that's one of the, one of the problems. We might get a peaceful transfer and we might get general election soon. Um, 
or this might go on for a very long time. Um, do you think this increasing turmoil, of course, it will have an effect on foreign relations of Sri Lanka, um, because some of it is related to the foreign relations they have kept over the years. Um, you know, some refugees from Sri Lanka, like in the past, might migrate or flee to India, um, south of India, um, and, and how, how will this impact the relations uh, between Sri Lanka and India, you think? Yeah, I, I'm not sure about that. So far, there's been no sign of people trying to escape to India. Um, my impression is that the, the pork straits between the two countries are now so well policed by the Indian Navy that it may be that rather few people will get over. And I suspect the numbers of people who might flee at the moment is so small that I don't think this will be an issue. So a situation would have to get really bad in Sri Lanka um, if that were to happen. But in a sense, India can always avoid that because you know it's quite the government of India could uh, provide enough food and other emergency supplies for quite a lot of people in Sri Lanka if they chose to do so, if they thought that you know major breakdown and refugee uh, flight was was the alternative. And do you um, just one or two more small questions? Do you, for example, like you know, it has been said that um, Sri Lanka. For example, in the, uh, in, the, in the port issue of uh, Hamantota uh, ceded sovereignty to the Chinese. Um, you see, and maybe this is very far-fetched, but I cannot help by, you know, looking at South Asia to see a lot of similarity between what is happening in Sri Lanka and what is happening in Pakistan. Um, both of them heavily... Chinese infrastructural projects, both of them in a political and economic crisis, both militaries very powerful, both of them having a civil war or close to a civil war if you count Afghanistan. So first of all, do you see those similarities? And then second, do, you know, is it almost as if people in the West feel that and uh, of course, Americans feel that much more than Europeans uh, like us do, or after Brexit, you know, the, the UK people do. Um, that, that it is almost policy of the new superpower, China, to go into these vulnerable countries where the military is very strong. And actually, uh, because there was a professor of Oxford whom we talked to as well, and he said, well, you know, they might be marketed as economic projects at the end they might turn into military strategic projects. Uh, so uh, do you, like the Americans, believe that this is really smart from the Chinese side or is it stupid from the other beneficiary side? Well, what is it? Yeah, um, I mean, my guess on this, and again, you know, we're all guessing, we don't know what's inside heads, is that um, policymakers in Beijing, are, we know they're trying to expand, as it were, the Chinese footprint, maritime and terrestrial everywhere, and to uh, get bases of various kinds. They're not necessarily military bases, but you know, once you have 
people on the ground, you always have the you know scope for converting that to a military base. So there's no doubt that um, you know China is looking. I mean, they're searching. You know, they're searching and they're probing and they're trying to find ways of doing this. I mean, the cost of doing that much of the time is not very high, um, and Sri Lanka is very convenient because it particularly upsets India. So you can, you know, you can keep poking India at a relatively low cost. I don't, I doubt that that's the reason that they funded Hambantota, or at least not the dominant reason that they funded Hambantota Port. I mean, that, that was basically a commercial loan on reasonable rates of interest. It was a deal. Um, but I think we can expect, you know, a continuation um, of that kind of rivalry, and that's going to impact. Uh, well, particularly, as you say, Pakistan and Sri Lanka at present. I mean, it is quite interesting if we look at South Asia at the moment, we look at Bangladesh as the almost the haven of um, peace and quiet in this respect. Um, economically speaking. Hmm? Also, economically speaking, uh, yes. what's the fastest growing, or I think the fastest growing economy in South Asia. Yes. So I think there's, I mean, you know, in the case of Pakistan, uh, it's very hard to see how Pakistan is going to escape from being caught in this situation. Um, in Sri Lanka, in principle, uh, it is possible that a combination of the Americans and uh, the government of India in Delhi might effectively decide that they are going to you know, impose their control over Sri Lanka. One could imagine that happening and close the Chinese out. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be a lot of resistance, but it's, you know, it's uh, sort of militarily, geostrategically quite possible. Um, and it will cost a lot of money, which will eventually end up in Chinese pockets. Um, that may be, yes. Um, but I think our best guess at present is we're going to see some kind of continuation of this kind of, you know, rivalry between, well, broadly, uh, China, India, and the US in particular for, for quite some time. And, and now coming to a bit of, you know, what do you think are the long-term structural reforms in Sri Lanka needs to undertake? First of all, to keep loans at a reasonable rate while ensuring economic growth and your extensive record in focusing on tax reforms. How can taxation structures be improved to facilitate a more stable and less debt finance growth. Okay. I mean, the long run economic outlook for Sri Lanka is in fact not at all bad. As I said earlier, it's benefited enormously from Asian economic growth. Um, there are a whole lot of new economic activities coming up. No, no one big cluster in addition to, you know, the existing uh, uh, businesses which include garments in particular, but there are new economic activities coming up through quite a thriving private sector. Um, I think without the debt crisis, uh, the economy would be doing fine. Um, if it were possible, and this is very challenging, is to actually reduce the number of people in public sector employment, this would actually release quite a lot of people to work in the private sector. And I mean, People being paid to do very little in the public sector and the military is now becoming a constraint on, on economic growth. And it's also, as they say, a constraint on education spending. So we, we have rather poor quality of uh, basic 
uh, public education. The fiscal issue is not in fact that difficult to solve. It's because the government has been giving away revenue. Um, it could go a long way by just reversing the recent changes that it made. Um, it could just say, well, we're going to restore that tax cut. And you know, to give you one simple example, Sri Lanka has long had, like almost all people, uh, governments of the world have, a, a system what we call PAYE, pay as you earn, for income tax for employees, which basically means that the employer takes the income tax from the employee's pay packet and remits it to government. Well, one of the things that the government of Sri Lanka did in 2009 was to effectively abolish that and say it's no longer mandatory, it's voluntary if you want your employer to take money from your pay packet. Well, of course, a lot of people said, no, I'd rather you know, um, try, try my hand at getting away with it. So raising the revenue is not actually you know, a problematic thing to do. I mean, it's the political will to do it. And currently, Sri Lanka collects the proportion of tax to GDP is about 50% of the level you'd expect of a government uh, of a government which you know, ruling a middle income country. So, you know, it's well below norms and expectations. Um, it will not be at all difficult to reverse that. And again, this is kind of illustrates a more general argument here that we've, you know, a lot of this is simple miscalculation and idiocy on the part of people in power. <laughs> Sorry if that sounds arrogant, but it, <laughs> that is the truth. Well, uh, Professor Moore, uh, that is, I think, a very good note to end on. Uh, I would like to thank you uh, for this uh, enlightening uh, interview and, and showing us, because, you know, if you, if you concentrate on South Asia, you're normally more concentrated, of course, with the recent things happening on Afghanistan or, or, or Indo-Pak relations, which have been there for 75 years. And Sri Lanka is, is, is a bit of an overlooked issue. Um, but this has been uh, very, very educational. And again, I would come back to, you know, if I have to um, sum up of what you've said is basically that the current crisis is almost, almost fully caused by government decisions it's man-made and it's years of debt accumulation policy missteps infrastructure projects with chinese funds which might have been politically very popular but economically didn't make sense all this together has brought us to this economic crisis in sri lanka that's the case yes and as you said things are changing rapidly uh, so we hope that at the end of the day, it goes, it goes in the direction of a more stable uh, Sri Lanka, which will take, of course, years considering the IMF uh, history as well. But at least what you said, direct cash transactions to the very poor uh, in Sri Lanka so that they can manage their just their daily life. Absolutely. Well summed up. Now, hopefully we can we can, hopefully we can speak to you again when things improve okay and, well i am keeping all fingers crossed on that and really hope they do okay. thank you very much today. thank you very much thank you sir thank you Thanks. bye <laughs>